0: HGQ Podcast. All right, hello and welcome everybody to another episode of Unscripted. This is going to be something different than uh, I've ever done before. So in my first episode of Unscripted, I talked about a little bit of my passion for true crime stories. And interestingly enough, when I was looking for a podcast to listen to about a case that had a lot of familiarity with Um, I grew up around where it happened Um, I knew some of the events and the places Um, Anyway, I was curious to see if anybody had done a podcast on it It was quite a bit of a national story And I, I couldn't find it And I had an aha moment I thought to myself I could do this And so Even though I said before that uh, stay away from true crime, because what can I add that hadn't already been done? Well, I found something that really hadn't been done that much, and I wanted to tell the story. So on today's episode of Unscripted, I'm doing my version of a true crime podcast. I invite you to take a listen. If true crime is not your cup of tea, I completely understand as well. Uh, If you're just here for good quotes and inspiration. Thank you for being an active listener and go ahead and feel free to skip this. But if you're still here and the curiosity got the better of you, I invite you to stick around and listen as I present to you the story of the assassination of Derwin Brown. Derwin Brown arrives at his home on Glasgow Drive sometime around 11.30 p.m. His home, a modest brick ranch with arched entryways, sits as the second of four homes on a dead-end road all the way towards the back of Derwin's neighborhood. Colored Christmas lights hang down from the roof and red bows adorn the front. It's just a small driveway, big enough for a single car garage, and it's full of other vehicles, so he must park in the road. He grabs up his things and hustles to the front door, For just cold and wet this December evening. Just 25 steps away from the house, something to the Sheriff elects right catches his eye. He pauses briefly, and is at this time, the attacker leaps from the shadows. Shots from a semi-automatic 9mm ring out. Three strike the officer and drop him to the ground, but the onslaught is not over. Another 13 shots are fired, eight more striking him where he lay, and then Silence. It is said that the murder of Derwin Brown that December evening was the first assassination of an elected official in the United States in over 20 years. The investigation into the crime would lead to a tangled web of corruption, power, and greed that would rock the community. And unfortunately, the life of Derwin Brown would not be the only one that was lost. DeKalb County is in the north-central part of Georgia, just east of Atlanta. Technically, Atlanta is part of the county. DeKalb is the fourth largest county in the state by population, and it's most population dense. In the year 2000, it had just north of 665,000 residents. Initially, mostly farmland, the county became more urban starting in the 1960s, thanks to a number of interstates built through and around it. It is said that there are more miles of interstate in the county than any other in Georgia. The county is very diverse. It has one of the most affluent African American populations in the U.S. The city of Shambly contains what is referred to as the International Village, which boasts to being one of the most diverse neighborhoods in the country. There are wonderful attractions, such as Stone Mountain which is a sprawling park around exposed granite that is more than five miles in circumference at its base and has an elevation of almost 1,700 feet. There's also the Fernbank Science Center and Natural History Museum. It's home to a bunch of parks and recreation centers, and it's just an overall wonderful place for a middle-class family. There's goods and bad parts, just like anywhere else, but in general, the good heavily outweighs the bad. However, there is one dirty secret about the county that cannot be denied, and that is corruption within its sheriff's department. There, unfortunately, is a long history of sheriffs abusing power and acting in their own self interest over that of the publics. The actions of the Cab County sheriffs have been plaguing the county since back to the mid century. You had Clem Jolly, who was in office from 1951 to 1953. He was accused of stealing money from the sheriff's office. Robert Broom was the next sheriff from 1953 until 1963. He was cleared by a jury of any wrongdoing, but was accused of defrauding a mentally incompetent man in a land deal while he was in office. J. Lamar Martin was next. He served from 64 to 1973 and was found guilty of taking bribes from Bell bondsmen. Up next would be Ray Bonner, who was indicted on two counts of perjury and one count of mail fraud in a fundraiser scheme. Then, after losing reelection, he was charged with the murder of a 16-year-old boy who he claimed was trying to break into his car. In 1977, former Atlanta Braves pitcher Pat Jarvis jumped into the political world by winning election as sheriff. He served until he resigned in 1995, and that next year, federal prosecutors began investigating his actions while in office, resulting in him pleading guilty to mail fraud and serving 15 months in federal prison. Now, In 1996, the county had hoped to see an end to the corruption with the election of its first-ever African-American sheriff, Sidney Dorsey. Dorsey made a name for himself in law enforcement as a homicide detective who played a significant role during the Atlanta child murders and the arrest of Wayne Williams. It was Dorsey's dream to become sheriff, and he'd run twice before and sunk a significant amount of his own money into the campaign. He ran and won the election on a campaign of reform. But sadly, just a few years into his term as sheriff, rumors about corruption within the office began to circulate. It seemed that the citizens of DeKalb would need to look to someone else to end the years of corruption that haunted the county. And the year 2000 election, it seemed that person just might be Derwin Brown. But he'd have a tough and uphill battle against the now mighty and powerful Sidney Dorsey political machine. Derwin Brown started in law enforcement with the Cab County in 1977 after moving to the area from New York. A role with the police suited him well. He loved people and believed in his community. Friends say he was the kind of man who would drive across the country to help a friend, and he would most certainly do anything for his wife Phyllis, who he doted on. Being a cop fit him, but not like Bruce Willis's character John McClane in the movie Die Hard. Think more of the other guy. You know, Reginald Vell Johnson, who played Sergeant Powell? Or maybe better you know him as Officer Carl Winslow on Family Matters. Derwin's heart was just as big as his frame, and he had a reputation as being an honest, straight-shooting cop. He rose to the ranks of the DeKalb PD as a narcotics investigator and then police lieutenant before ascending to the position of captain. Brown wasn't afraid to ruffle feathers, either. He was critical of county officials and rallied for a more diverse police force that fit the demographics of the community. He lobbied to unionize the force as a way to create solidarity against some of the greed of those who were in charge. And that's what led him to run for sheriff, first in 1996 as an outsider and underdog, where he placed third. In his next attempt, he was again seen as a long shot against the now politically mighty Dorsey. A former DeKalb County DA is quoted as saying that if he was a betting man, he would have bet his life savings on Dorsey winning the sheriff's election. But... Brown, being four years wiser and more determined than ever, he intensified his cries against the corruption of the establishment. He painted himself as the people's sheriff. However, in the 2000 election, once all the votes were cast and the ballots were counted, Sidney Dorsey was clearly out front. But there was a catch. Sidney Dorsey did not win by majority vote, as Georgia law requires he collected just under 50%, a mere 400 votes shy of an all-out win. And therefore, there would have to be a runoff. And this time, the tables would turn. In the weeks leading up to the runoff between Dorsey and Brown, news stories intensified around the corruption claims against Dorsey's Sheriff's Department. It was already rumored that he was allowing deputies while on duty with the county to work jobs with his private security firm, racking up hours and hours of overtime. But now there were details about using department employees to run personal errands for Dorsey while on the clock, and even more scathing tales of allowing inmates to go out on work release to perform renovation projects in his wife's political district. There was also claims of harassment against the sheriff. The heat was turning up on Dorsey, and the people of DeKalb County were tired. Derwin Brown would win the runoff election by a margin of two to one. The people would have their sheriff. With the election behind him, Derwin Brown knew that an even harder task lay ahead. In the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, he was quoted as saying, It doesn't look like this is going to be a smooth transition, given the circumstances of this race. How right he would be. Though he would not assume office officially for another five months, Brown quickly got to work in preparation for his role as sheriff. He formed a transition team of trusted, well respected law enforcement officials. He requested reviews and audits of the Sheriff's Department. He met with the Cab County DA, J. Tom Morgan, about plans for further investigations. All these actions led Brown to the conclusion that the rumors were, in fact, true corruption existed within the department and reached the highest levels of the organization there were a number of bad apples that were spoiling the bunch. But there was also many more good ones amongst the population. So he had decided he would rid the department of the bad apples. A number of employees were served notice that they would be relieved of their roles with the Cab County Sheriff's Department at the start of 2001 when Derwin Brown took office. Now, I've seen the number listed anywhere from 22 up to 62 employees. But the number that is most frequently quoted is approximately 38 Those close to Brown argued for him not to give any notice to this group. These people misused the public's trust. Why did they deserve a heads-up about being let go? Besides, doesn't that give them an opportunity to dispose of evidence, or worse, give them a large grudge to hold against the incoming sheriff? Just let sleeping dogs lie and fire them when you take office. But that just didn't seem right to Derwin. Despite their wrongdoings, he still believed they deserved notice so they can prepare themselves to be let go. That was just Derwin Brown's good-natured way. Friday, December fifteenth, 2000, was a cold, wet, dreary day in metro Atlanta. But that could not dampen the spirits of the Brown family. They were all in a celebratory, cheerful mood. Not only was it the holiday season, but it was also Phyllis' 46th birthday. And on top of that, Derwin had just graduated from his required sheriff's training at the state facility in Forsyth, Georgia. Plans were for Brown to be sworn in on the upcoming Monday the 18th in his brand new sheriff's uniform that he just got fitted for. But tonight, well tonight was for celebrating. The Brown family hosted a small group of friends, family, and supporters at a local restaurant. The mood was jovial and light. Derwin proudly showed off a sheriff's pin he was awarded for completing his training as they dined on a special dish prepared for the event by the restaurant. Tired from the day's events and the work of a long campaign, his wife Phyllis left the party ahead of Derwin, waited for his arrival at home with family. Sometime around 10, 11 p.m., he told his group that he was going to finish his last drink and make the short drive home. Shortly after arriving at his residence, Derwin Brown was gunned down in his driveway. Inside, the Brown family was unaware of what was taking place. Initially, Phyllis believed it was just fireworks. The holidays, of course, were right around the corner. But her son, Robert, quickly exclaimed, those were no fireworks. That was gunfire. Phyllis called 911. Still, no one inside could even make themselves believe that that was an attack against their loved one. She initially called, reporting gunfire at a neighbor's house. But when she stepped outside, that belief was quickly replaced by the horror which laid before her. She shouted to the 911 operator, Captain Brown has been shot. Captain. He still hadn't even been sworn in yet as sheriff. Phyllis crept to his side and knelt beside him. Her hand touched his body, lying there in the driveway on that cold, rainy night. She knew he was gone. Investigators quickly labeled the crime not just a murder, but an assassination. A multi-organization task force was set up to find the killer or killers and swiftly bring them to justice. Though Derwin Brown was a beloved family man and community leader, he also ruffled a lot of feathers inside an already corrupt organization. There were a lot of reasons that a number of people would want to see him dead. Investigators quickly began to focus on one of those people, a recently fired sheriff's deputy named Patrick Cuffey. Patrick Cuffey was one of four people fired on the first day of the new administration of interim sheriff Thomas Brown. No relation. Cuffey was also on the list of employees who Derwin Brown sent a letter to informing him that he would be fired at the start of his administration. Patrick Cuffey seemed to be someone who greatly benefited from the wrongdoing under the previous sheriff, Sidney Dorsey. In fact, Audits revealed that despite not having any official high rank within the organization, Cuffy was the department's second highest paid employee next to that of the sheriff. He also had a history of criminal activity. He was arrested seven times from 1988 through 1995, though in each one of those instances, charges were dropped. But these charges ranged from assault, to receiving stolen firearm, to even impersonating a police officer. Now, the real interesting fact that had investigators' attention on Patrick Cuffy was that he was reportedly following Derwin Brown in the days leading up to the runoff election. A not-so-chance meeting took place between the two officers at the South Decab Mall before the election. To Derwin Brown, Cuffey was a Dorsey supporter and an employee who was tracking his movements. Cuffey and his lawyer confirmed the meeting, but they downplayed the incident simply just by happening by chance. Patrick Cuffy was looking more and more like a significant person of interest. Now the investigation turned hot again in early March when police searched the home of Paul Skyers, a longtime friend of Patrick Cuffy. The two were both from the Caribbean and worked security jobs together. Cuffey again downplayed the incident, stating that police were simply harassing those close to him to try to get someone to talk but there was nothing to say because Cuffy hadn't committed any crime. A short while later, an arrest was made. Another former deputy, Melvin Walker, was arrested for providing false statements to police in the investigation. Melvin Walker, like Cuffy, was one of the four people fired from the department January 1st and previously worked at the same security firm that both Cuffy and Skyers had worked. And then, just a few short days later, Police released that they were seeking out another man, David Ramsey, for possibly lying to police during their investigation. Ramsey was yet another Cuffy associate who had a history of violence. A native of the Virgin Islands, he was charged there for attempted murder in 1993, but the charges were later dismissed. The weapon used was a Tech 9 pistol, the same type used in the assassination of Derwin Brown. Investigators were clearly focusing in on this quartet of shady characters, but it seemed they still didn't have enough evidence to charge any of them, else they would. When Derwin's widow was asked about her opinion of the progress of the case, she quoted to the papers, They might find the Trigger Man, but I don't think they will find the ultimate person who's behind it all. Unfortunately, there would be another murder before she was proven to be wrong. It was a peaceful Sunday mid-morning on March 18th in the South DeKalb neighborhood of River Lake Estates. That was until the silence was broken by the thundering sound of gunfire. Rapid shots fired in succession, tat 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 tat, somewhere around 50 in all, shattered the calm of the normally peaceful neighborhood. Police, emergency vehicles, and media trucks quickly swarmed the area. Investigators would come to find an abandoned pickup full of bullet holes and then the blood-soaked body of a victim in a park about a mile away from the scene of the shooting. The scene being right in front of the home of one Patrick Cuffey. Witnesses of the shootout say that Cuffey and another man were standing in his front lawn when some vehicles pulled up. Shots were fired from the vehicles at Cuffey and his friend as they fired back and ran for cover there were tons of questions. Could this shooting be tied to Brown's murder? Was Cuffy targeted for an assassination himself? His lawyer was quoted saying as much when he said this was an effort to do away with him so that he could not talk. Was Patrick Cuffy just another target in some large sinister plot targeting certain members of the sheriff's department? Cuffy was led away in handcuffs, but investigators were clear that he was not under arrest, but would be taken in for further questioning. Details would soon emerge that the shootout involved Cuffy and five other men. In the shooting, two men were injured and then there was one death, a man by the name of Jeffrey Nigel George. George was known to be an area drug dealer, and the motive for the shooting seemed to stem from a drug deal gone bad. One thing was clear, Patrick Cuffey, was wrapped up in a criminal world of violence and corruption, but how it all tied together, and what exactly his role was, still unknown. Now, in April of 2001, two special grand juries would meet in DeKalb County. One would be investigating corruption within the sheriff's office, and the other would be diving into the Derwin Brown assassination. One of their items to consider was the March 18th shootout and how it could all be related to the murder of Derwin Brown. Through the course of the investigation, Cuffey's house would be searched again, and he would ultimately be charged in connection to the March 18th shooting. He was arrested and charged with kidnapping and murder of Jeffrey Nigel George, which put him in jeopardy of doing some serious prison time. Then, there was an interesting announcement regarding Cuffey. It was announced that he, Patrick Cuffey, pled guilty to much lesser charges. Aggravated assault, tampering with evidence, and lying to police. Now These were serious charges in their own right, but much lesser than murder and kidnapping. What exactly was going on in Cab County with Patrick Cuffey? Was this the work of more corruption? On Friday, November 30th of 2001, the answer became clear. Cuffey along with friend Paul Skyers, had cut a deal with investigators leading to the arrest of associates Melvin Walker and David Ramsey, along with the biggest surprise of all, former DeKalb County Sheriff Sidney Dorsey. Cuffey had told investigators how the whole plot unfolded. Sidney Dorsey was a mentor and father figure to Cuffey. He allowed him to amass all the excessive overtime pay, he stepped in and helped him avoid disciplinary action. Cuffey looked up to Sidney Dorsey, and Dorsey knew that he could exploit the admiration. After Dorsey lost the runoff against Brown, he summoned Cuffey to his home and passed him a note that simply read, Kill Derwin Brown. After reading the note, Dorsey took it back and destroyed the evidence by eating it. Cuffey put together his cast of conspirators, with the promise of lifetime employment under Dorsey, and began to plan the crime. They studied, they surveyed, they rehearsed, but still they didn't act, and that was angering the former sheriff. Finally, the week before Brown was to be sworn in, Sidney Dorsey insisted that it must be now. So, the four put their plan into action. They drew straws on who would be the trigger man, Melvin Walker drew the short straw and was selected to pull the trigger. David Ramsey would have a handgun and be the backup shooter in case something happened. Cuffy would direct the assassination, and Skyers would act as a getaway driver. On that cold, damp December evening, the shooters would lie in wait at an empty house at the end of Brown's Dead End Street. When they saw the sheriff-elect pull up to his home, they moved from their hiding place and moved under the cover of darkness closer to the ambush point. Before Derwin Brown could make it up the last few steps of his drive, Melvin Walker sprang from the darkness and emptied his weapon into the sheriff-elect. The trio then ran away from the scene into the getaway car. After Phyllis called 911 and ran to her husband there in the driveway, she thought to herself, Sidney did this. Up first at trial was Melvin Walker and David Ramsey. The prosecution of the two defendants relied heavily on testimony from Patrick Cuffey, an admitted criminal who made a deal to save himself from further prosecution. The evidence was not enough for the jury to believe the case against them beyond a reasonable doubt, and they delivered a verdict of not guilty. Now The two would be tried again in federal court and both be found guilty there and sentenced to life. Sidney Dorsey's trial would require a change of venue and take place in Albany, Georgia. Dorsey would face 13 charges, including racketeering, theft by taking, and murder. Jury selection would begin in June 2002, and plans by the prosecution were to run the trial in two parts. The first part being the corruption piece, and the second part being the murder of Derwin Brown. After all the testimony, the jury returned a verdict on July 10th. Sidney Dorsey was found guilty of murder as well as 10 of the other 12 remaining charges. At the sentencing hearing, Dorsey held his hand up and showed his palm to the court. He defiantly declared that he did not have the blood of Derwin Brown on his hands before he was later sentenced to life. Unfortunately, The Derwin Brown assassination scandal would claim one more victim still. Family matriarch Phyllis Brown suffered a stroke eight months after the conviction of Sidney Dorsey. The long and stressful year and a half wore her body down and left her barely able to speak. In 2006, on the anniversary of her husband's murder, she attended a graveside vigil with family and friends to honor the man she loved. Nine days later, on Christmas Eve, she passed away when her heart gave out after being in respiratory distress. Phyllis Brown literally died of a broken heart. I want to thank you all very much for joining me on this here episode of HGQ Podcast Unscripted. Um, this was an episode I put a lot of work in. I'm really excited to bring it to you. It is completely different than anything else on this podcast, um, and I just appreciate those who listened and allowed me to to stray off base and uh, try something that I felt so passionate uh, about doing. If you'd like to hear more content like this, um, toying around with the idea of potentially making a uh, another show where I can focus on some true crime stories, uh, maybe some lesser known stories. (laughs) I said before that I didn't think I was qualified for that, but, um, I, I really found myself, uh, drawn to doing today's episode. And, uh, so yeah, if it's something you'd like to hear more of, uh, let me know. And if you're just here for great quotes and, uh, Let me know that, too, and I'll be happy to to continue that journey on with you all. Um, Hit me up, hgqpodcast.wordpress.com. There you can find all the ways to get in touch with me. All right. Thanks, everybody. Hope you enjoyed today's episode. Look forward to talking to you next time. Cheers.